morning. So, I'm Buddy Sampson, associate pastor, getting to wrap up Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, excited to talk about it with you all. It's fu- this is kind of fun for me. I feel like this happens more often than not, that this, has been, this passage has been on my heart for several months as I was just doing my own Bible reading and went through Deuteronomy and the second half particularly of this. And so I feel excited to get to talk about it because um, I feel like we, the Shema, we, we know it, we preach it, we hear it a lot. And then the second half maybe can get left out sometimes, like it's um, not as necessary. I don't think that's the case. So just a couple things right off the bat here I want to make sure we're all aware of. The second half of Deuteronomy 6 is borderline a recitation of the first half. In, in Hebrew literature, very common to say the same thing twice. We don't just see it in like simple passages in the Psalms. We see it in even larger sections where the same concept is being repeated again. It's a, it's a matter of emphasis, and so it's something we're really supposed to know. Not as if all of it isn't, but this is how, this is how Hebrew literature works. I'll also point out that there's going to be some similarities between what Zach had and what I have is like the big truth that I think comes out of this text But I also want to point out a kind of a general hermeneutic principle, and all that means is a general way to approach the Bible in terms of how to interpret it well that I think really shows up in this passage we're going to do today. And it's kind of this idea that you usually see these three components in a logical argument, especially in the epistles when Paul writes where it's some, not even in this order necessarily, but do this thing so that this will happen. Why? Because of this thing that the Lord has done. So like Ephesians is a really clear place where we see that big time. The first three chapters basically of Ephesians are, look what the Lord has done. And then the last three chapters are, so that you will do this, um, so that this will happen, now do these things, right? It's kind of like it moves from theology to application. Well, this is similar, but it's a little bit different. I'm going to try to break it up so you can see this clearly in the text. And I will tell you to look for it elsewhere as well. We're going to see, do these things so that this will happen. And then we'll go back and see why. Um, So, big truth right off the bat. Let's hit it here. This is going to look like Zach's. Zach's big truth last week was God is good and keeps all his promises. He alone is worthy of our love and obedience. And I have just simply added a word in there. He is worthy of our children's love and obedience. This this section is going to be really about this idea of discipleship and why. Um, And so I'm excited to kind of talk through it with you. So let's just start. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6 up to the point where I'll start preaching today, and then I'll pause so that we can be on on the same page here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, please follow along in your Bible or on your phone, whatever it is. I, I'm just very partial to the idea that you should read the Bible and not trust what I'm saying up here as your, as your authority. So, the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, and that your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of goods that you did not fill, 
and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other, the other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Now, this is where we pick up for today, and we're not going to go through the whole thing. We're going to just start in 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. We'll stop there to start. What did the, so right off the bat, let's just make sure we have to, when you see this sentence, I hope that all of you are like, what happened at Massa? Right? When you tested the Lord at Massa, what, what happened at Massa? Well, if you were to go back and you were to read in the Exodus about, I think it's chapter 17, where Moses is at the rock and they're thirsty, and he's going to give water to them from the rock. You've heard this story. Some of you will confuse it with the numbers. The second time he's getting water from the rock and he strikes the rock twice and doesn't do exactly what the Lord says because he was supposed to command it with his mouth, and it was a sin in the eyes of God. This is different. He did what the Lord said. He brings water forth from the rock, but he said, like the the Israelites were testing him at Massa. What was the test? This is a weird expression to me. Their, their test was that they grumbled about why they were out there in the middle of the wilderness. And I read that and thought, the grumbling was the test? That seems like a weird expression. Like, I, I can see them, why, don't sin against the Lord like you did at Massa, or don't question the Lord, but testing him? I thought that was kind of an interesting expression. And then I kind of thought about it to think, why would this be a test? And honestly, one of the first things that came to my mind was, this is going to sound weird, driving around Fort Collins, where all of our roads are like on the 100th degree of like the latitude and longitude lines, and they all cross at exactly 90 degrees, 90 degrees, and they're all like perfectly spaced. I think we all agree, you can go anywhere in this town by 15 different routes, and you'll get there at almost exactly the same time, right? It's a beautiful thing about this place. Like, oh, there's the stoplight's red here. I'm just going to turn left a little bit earlier, and I'll maybe just catch a stoplight later on. Well, this is how we drive, and I, I love it. I go down to like Taft half the time just to go to Old Town, because you can just drive path north and barely ever hit a light the whole way. I mean, it's, it's convenient in Fort Collins. However, for some reason, no matter, in, in, without fail, if we left today from church and, I, and we were going to go to Inca's to eat lunch, and I did not go the regular way, Seth, my 10-year-old manager in our house, would literally say to me, why are we going this way? And I would say, we're just going to eat. Why this way? It's the way I want to go. Is it faster? It's about the same. Then why did we go this way? This is the debate. And my blood pressure goes up, and then, and then all I can think about is getting Incas for a Negra Modelo. No, that's not true. What happens is I get, I feel it well up in me, like, and here's what it is. He's testing me. This is a test. And what is the test? The test is, am I trustworthy? Am I loyal? Because this isn't the direction he expected to be. These are the thoughts that are going through his little head. It's like, wait a second. I'm confused about this. This doesn't seem like what it ought to be. This is exactly what happened in Massa when the Israelites were saying, we're thirsty, why are we out here? Can we have died in Egypt? This is what happened. This was a test of the Lord because his trustworthiness was on the line, his goodness for them, his promises were on the line. And so my slightly big, different big idea to start out is not fear God and keep his commandments, which is Zach's last week, but trust God and keep his commandments. The foundation for our keeping the commandments of God is our trusting him. It isn't mere blind obedience out of obligation. It's because we think what he has for us is best. And I think that's why when you read it in this context and you see 
this sentence specifically as it says, keep the commandments, don't test it, Massa, do this instead. And then we move right down to verse 18 and it says, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. That it may go well with you. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, trusting with the Lord's call on our life is the beginning of our desire to do what he has called us to do. I'm going to speak kind of to the college student for just a moment, but only because of my own personal experience, and I think everybody here would probably share this belief. The effort in college, particularly, that the world invests in to draw people into the conclusion that what the Lord desires for you is subpar than what the world has to offer you. The world is going to offer you a version of fun and and excitement and joy and pleasure that you have to suppress and just get over and not indulge in so that you can go to heaven. And that is garbage. And I'm just going to tell you guys, and I'm telling every young person here particularly, that is, that is an untruth. It is a lie of Satan that what God has for us is worse and less fun and that there are these other things. I did a little research and found that $7 billion was the alcohol ad spend in the United States in 2021. That's how much alcohol companies spend on advertising, $7 billion. $13 billion in entertainment, video games and Netflix and whatever else. And there is a huge effort to try to win young people particularly, but Christians in general, away from the belief that obedience to what God has for us is good for us, that it may go well with us. And I think about, I mean, I go, you know, I take my kids, we go to Horse Tooth, I love to cliff jump with the kids, and we'll have fun, and we'll see the college students cliff jumping. And half the time, the the kids are like, they'll see me cliff jump, and that's insufficient. They see a college kid cliff jump, and they're like, I think I can do that. And I'm like, "I, I don't understand. I don't understand it wasn't sufficient for me. But then it gets to a point where, there's like the, the crack, like the shotgunning white claws, which is its own problem that I don't fully understand. No offense to Gary Sykes, who I know likes a seltzer. You can tell Gary I said that, Jana. But this is the truth. It, it digresses into something that within about an hour after that starts, I'm like, we got to get out of here before somebody gets hurt. And I feel bad for them because cliff jumping, as exhilarating as it, as, as it is by itself, is insufficient. And for some reason, having to be intoxicated to do it has taken its place. And there's this, this false belief that we have that if we do what the Lord wants, we try to live godly and pure and obediently, that we're going to have to forsake all the fun of the experience at different stages of life. And it's a lie. And I believed the lie for most of my young years. And even into my adulthood, I believed that that lie was true. And it wasn't until later on that I got to experience, and I, and I think this is the case for many of us later in our walk, we get to experience that the adrenaline rush of Christianity is absolutely there for us. It's just going to the mission field. It's just doing the right thing day in and day out. And it's pursuable and without the need for these other things, for intoxication and otherwise. But the truth is the world is trying to sell us on it. They want us to believe what they have for us is more fun than what the Lord has. It is better for us. And I'm here to tell you that it is a lie. And that what we want to do is be obedient to the Lord and what he has called us to, expecting that from that it will go well with us. Our life will be more joyous and more joyful. Now, as we work on down this passage, we move here into the second or the third part of that verse, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord had promised. I want you, you don't have to do it this moment, but you're welcome to. If you spend about three or four minutes staring at that, those two verses, you will either be really, really confused or really, really confident about how the Lord works in your life, but there will be nothing in between. Those couple of verses. And here's the reason I simply say that. This is suggesting in this passage that when we trust the Lord, 
do what he's called us to, that it may go well with us, that the consequence of that will be the realization of his promises to us. Now that sounds really nice, except if you keep reading, it says this promise that was made to your fathers and the Lord is going to thrust out the enemies and bring it to pass. So who is it? Is it our obedience that brings the promise of God to fruition? Or does the Lord bring his promises to fruition in spite of us? I mean, we, we sing these songs, we sang one this morning, that's about the Lord's faithfulness to us when we're particularly not faithful to him. How does he bring about his promise that way? And I want to give you a theological concept that you can explore further, but I'm going to give it to you today to think about, jot it down in your notes. It's simply called compatibilism. And all compatibilism means is that God's perfect sovereignty, we just sang a song, you are sovereign over us, and his perfect sovereignty and our free agency and decision-making are compatible. That's what this means. They function together. Now, in a post-enlightenment reality, we have like hit this weird thing. Humans are so incredibly arrogant that we literally go to Scripture and say, if we can't reconcile this, we'll fix what the Bible says. And one of the things that we like to do is create this opposition, this conflict that does not exist in the Bible, and that is that either God has done this or I have done this. But it can't be both. If it's both, then there is conflict of responsibility. Now, the Bible doesn't know anything of this concept. The Bible is really, really clear. God has done it through you, through, you, through us. I love in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul basically is like, look what Jesus has done on the cross for our sin, what that means for us. Now we're the messengers of reconciliation. Now I'm going to tell you, go be reconciled to God. God's sovereignty carried out through the free agency of people. And what you see in this passage is this simple point. Obedience will realize the promise of God. Now here comes the next point. Well, what about the people who don't obey the statutes and commands? What about people who, who rebel? Is the promise realized for them? And here's what I would tell you. A lack of desire in your heart to pursue the will of the Lord is merely evidence that maybe the promise isn't for you. The Israelites who rebelled against God, remember, this isn't a con, we just finished Judges, right? This is before Judges, what we're reading right now. What happened in Judges? The spiral into the, you know, deprivation, I mean, just depravity. The, how bad could it get in Judges? So there were people who were not children of the promise, and you're thinking, well, wait a second. I thought the Israelites were the, the chosen, promised people of God. They were. Some of them. The faithful. The faithful in Jesus, who had been born in the Messiah and God's salvation, they were. That is the Israelites. But those who persisted in rebellion and did not, there's no reason that we would have to believe that they were the receivers of the promise. So what I'm simply saying to you is as we look at the Israelites and we apply it to our own reality, we want to recognize our obedience, our desire for obedience to God as evidence of the fact that we are people of the promise. And the same thing exists here. This is how God works compatibly. He will bring his promise to fruition faithfully, and he will do it through people who are faithful to him. That's, that's the message that we should get here, and that those things can go hand in hand. So this is the do. Do these things, follow the commandments of the Lord and the statutes and the laws, and now we move into the so that part. And this is going to be why. And we move right on into verse 20 here. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the big idea, which is that understanding what God has done is the foundation of discipleship. Personal understanding of what God has done is the foundation of discipleship. This is, I was two nights ago, before we read, I was, uh, my grandfather's funeral was back in April. Some of you know, my, he, 
he's, a, he's the best man at my wedding. I love this man. I hated him when I was a teenager. I loved him afterwards. Um, great figure in my life. He was like my dad. I, I have a little um, bookmark in this book, Oswald Sanders' book that I'm reading, and it, it's from his funeral, and it says his date of his, you know, his birth and death, and then it's got a picture of him from when he was at West Point. And I'm looking at this picture as I'm laying in bed, and I, I notice my first, one of the first things my eyes look at are his tie because his tie is perfect. And I just immediately had this flashback to how as early as elementary school, I can remember my granddad describing to me that the only appropriate tie to tie is a full Windsor and that a half Windsor is for lazy people and it looks like crap and it does. Take note, young, young men especially, it looks terrible. And that a double Windsor is way too much effort and totally unnecessary. And that the full Windsor is how you tie a tie. And I remember vividly him teaching me and me practicing and I remember as a young kid coming out of like the bathroom ready for church or whatever it was and him saying your dimple's not in the middle and me being like oh it's not no and I'd go back in the bathroom and fix my tie when I was a high school principal before moving out here back in Kentucky I would walk down the graduation line and fix the men's ties who were about to walk across the stage just to be like come on some guys that was like take that off take it off I'll tie it real quick before you go this is terrible I'm not you can't walk out there like this he loved Jesus he taught me how to tie a Windsor and why. But he did not teach me the Bible. The intentionality for a lot of things in my life came from my grandfather, but it wasn't the Bible. And I, liked the, I love the man. He's in heaven with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He lived a godly life right before my eyes. But here's my point to you. Living a godly life is insufficient and a disobedient for what this Bible says you ought to do when it comes to to talking to young people, to talking to your children, to talking to the children in this church, it's insufficient. I knew how to tie a full Windsor. I did not know the gospel well. And I think that matters. Intentionality matters. And let's see how the weightiness of the intentionality that Moses is going to drop on us right here in Deuteronomy. So verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, let me just pause there. When your son asks you, not if, when your son asks you in time to come, when your kids, they're going to ask. Young people are going to confront you. They are going to ask questions. Why do we go there every Sunday? Why do we miss our baseball game for this? Why do we give money to this? Why do we eat bread and drink grape juice once a month? Why do we do this? Every, why is this? What's the, what's the, you better have answers for that. Those are the easy questions. Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just forgive everybody? Does God want everybody to be saved? Why doesn't he save everybody? Is he not powerful enough? If God created everything and knew that some people would end up perishing, why did he create anything in the first place? Can you answer those questions? Because your child will ask. My faith grew at 100 miles an hour because of somebody sitting in this room right now who asked me the hardest questions after the Lord opened my eyes and made me have to think these are hard questions, and here's what I'm here to tell you. These are real questions, and if you can't answer them, you're unprepared. That's going to be a problem. Now, I don't want to leave you discouraged. As a church body, there's so much wisdom in this room and in these rooms back here right now to make sure that those questions get answered. I mean, I love Brandon does theology over breakfast with college students, and I'm doing it next, this coming Saturday, right? And I love it because it's I love that it's a collegiate ministry that doesn't shirk away from hard questions. 
and let's know the Lord for who he actually is in this Bible. God, that's necessary. And some of you are so early in your walk, you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know this. And I would say, we should talk about it. Let, let me give you some resources for this to help you because we want to help encourage you to that. But let me tell you what you can't do. You can't turn around and cross your fingers that you don't get asked. You can't do that. That will fail and fail miserably. My son Oliver is 12 years old, and literally a month ago, he said, God knew how everything would happen on this earth before he created it. And I said, yes. And he literally looked at me and said, gosh, why did he create it? And it broke my heart. And the reason it broke my heart was his little 12-year-old heart from perspective, he sees suffering. He sees the reality of homelessness. We watch TV about what's going on in other places in the world. He sees these things, and it, it breaks his little heart. And what I have to remind him is, he created you for this, though. He created you to address this. And I think that it matters that we have the right answers for how the Lord could act and operate in such a way. And it matters. And when Moses, and we're going to get into this a little bit deeper in a second, but when Moses is writing this, he is expecting these people. Remember, when you read this passage, and think about this in your own life, his concern is generations away from where he's writing. Your son and your son's son. And if he may as well have said, and your son's son's sons and thereafter. The whole perspective is about how to radically change the nature of Israel by being concerned generationally and not just with yourself. But it starts with our ability and our willingness to answer and have the hard questions. When your son asks in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. His, I want to make two quick points here as we navigate into this passage. First of all, Moses had done this, right? Moses hadn't heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. He's writing this right after it had happened. He is talking about his own experience. And I don't care how, how old you are in here. If you call yourself a believer, I am hoping that you would be able to tell someone your own testimony about what the Lord has done in your life. Look what the Lord has done. And it may be bigger than a testimony. It may be into other aspects of your life. I met a couple at our little Jambrosia. Every year we have this cul-de-sac party in the fall, and we, try, we use it to like meet our neighbors. It's fun. And I met two, and literally as I'm sitting there, there are two new neighbors from the next street over, and one of the first things out of their mouth was, yeah, we just got here a year and a half ago. We had planned to move before, but God had a different plan. We had a we had a kid in the middle of it all, of trying to transition. We had our first child, and this little baby's there. And immediately I was like, you believers? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're from Texas. So I was like, oh, join the crowd. No, but they, they, they're believers. And it was cool because what they said wasn't we were going to move, and then we changed our mind. It was the Lord had other plans. And those, those realities, your kids need to hear those things. They need to hear it from your life. They need to be encouraged by your ability to convey to your children, look what the Lord has done in our life. Right, so Moses is appealing to that when he says, he brought us out of Egypt from Pharaoh. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit and make sure we have clear understanding there. But the first thing is your experiences. You should be able to tell him. Now, I'm not saying that's the most important thing. I'm just saying we see it here in the text. I think it's going to get more important because as he goes on in the next verse, it says at verse 23, and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. 
and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So Moses turns not just to his own experience, but to the promise. I would consider in our, in our reality, this is to the Bible, to scripture. Yes, it hadn't been written yet, right? Moses is writing this. But the story of the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and, and to Jacob, the story of this unfolding had been conveyed all the way down through Moses, right? Who was literally living 400 years after that. And so I think when, we, when you talk to your kids, it's one thing to say, look what the Lord's done in my life. It's another thing to say, let's go to the Bible and see what the Lord has done, period. And we can see how we fit into this story as chosen people of God. And in post-Jesus New Testament reality, I think it matters that you're able to do it both ways. That's exactly what Moses does here. I did this firsthand crossing the Red Sea. I was there when it happened. But this was merely the keeping of the promise he had made the generations before us. So I think it matters both as you disciple your kids. But we would make a mistake if we didn't go back to the Exodus and read what the story is about. Because I'm telling you, the older I've gotten and as I listen to kids and I hear their stories and the way that they even describe it or we watch it on one of our little homeschool TV shows or whatever, this story has been reduced to this miraculous event where God parted the water. And listen, he did part the water. And it was miraculous. And I, you, I mean, some of you know this about me. I'm like super skeptic and anything that's like physically unrealistic, I get real critical of and skeptical of. I despise it about myself. I reduce the Lord's miracles most of the time to coincidence in my brain and my heart. I hate it. I hate it about me. And I like in this passage in the Exodus, and you can turn there if you want to, it's Exodus chapter 14. I like that it was a strong east wind that holds back the water. And I get some weird little sense of hope in that. Like, ah, oh, he, used, he used wind. And for some reason that feels reassuring to me. Like, look, he used the wind to hold the water back. And he walks through, right, and he parts the sea. And we love the story, and we see the God's salvation. And frankly, we miss the point. Because that isn't the point. It's not the point in our salvation. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But the salvation of Israel was not the main point of the crossing of the Red Sea. And you see it clearly in the text if you look at it. Just go to Exodus 14 with me, and we're going to start right at the first verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Phi-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal, Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The Exodus is about the Egyptians knowing that Yahweh is Yahweh. That's what this was for. He could have just, Pharaoh could have said, sure, leave. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is a whole different sermon. We won't get into it right now, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? No. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? He wanted to get glory over Pharaoh. He wanted the Egyptians to know he was God. His concern was worship from the Egyptians who weren't worshiping him. That's the story of the Exodus. Now, I, there's an expression, if you've been in any of my little hermeneutics classes, hermeneutics just meaning, again, how we interpret things. We talk about this concept of, like, the reason for things and the purpose for things. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, and they're not even necessarily different concepts, but it's just an easy way to get in your brain the reason for something was why it came to pass looking backwards, and the purpose for something is why it came to pass looking forwards, now that it's happened. 
And I think we see an example of that here when the crossing of the Red Sea was to make the Egyptians know that he is God. And then fast forward to the end of chapter 14. And it says, starting in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and, saw, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This brought fear and belief from the Israelites. God's concern was the Egyptians would worship him and the Israelites would worship him. Salvation was a means to that end. Now remember, when, just so we don't lose the context here, this is Moses in Deuteronomy telling the Israelites to tell their generations about the Exodus. Do you think it was merely he parted the Red Sea? Or do you think it was you are a people that the Lord has is demonstrating his might through that unbelievers would believe and that you would be reassured. And I'm here to tell you as we move forward to kind of bring all this together, this is the gospel, guys, that has been just upended and destroyed by Western Christianity. This is the actual gospel. And here's what I mean. Here's what I would like for you to do. Because we can't end here at the end of 6. I want you to go to chapter 7. So remember... Chapters and verses were not in the original biblical manuscripts. In fact, it wasn't even in most of the original translations in the Latin Vulgate and otherwise. It was added, I think it was like 800. Brandon, maybe you could correct me. I don't, I don't remember. But I think it was like around the 8th century is when they went back and added chapters to make it easier to find things in Scripture. I bring that up simply because don't be fooled that when you're reading through a chapter of the Bible that the thought might not be continuous on into the next chapter. Okay, and so here this is one of those cases because... He has laid all of this out that we should live this way, that it will be righteousness for us. We will do what the Lord has commanded us. We're going to teach it to our young people. And then go to verse 6 in chapter 7, and you see this critical word, for. And that word for is the because. So I originally started this whole sermon out with, do this thing so that this. Follow the statute in commandments so that when your son asks you, you can tell him why. Because, and this is the because starting in, chapter, in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for, if you, were the fewest of all, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So this final big idea is that God keeps his promises in Jesus and he conveys his promises through his chosen people. From the beginning, God chose people. In our post-enlightenment world, again, where we struggle with the idea of compatibilism, we like to assume responsibility for what we know and believe. And the truth is, this idea of election or predestination or capture any of those expressions you want, the controversial ones, and for just a second, just look at what this passage says. God chose the weak and the small that he might get glory. We see it again in 1 Corinthians. God chose the 
um, the, the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. Why? Because he wants his glory. He wants glory. He's due glory. And in this instance, we see that what Israel, what, what um, Moses is trying to put together for the people of Israel here is simply this. You were chosen that he may keep his covenant that the peoples of the earth will worship him. This is the gospel. This is a picture of Christianity. This is a picture of what Jesus Christ did. I, when you're, and I've, you've heard me say this before, and I've talked about marriage from here, or there are other illustrations. When you change your brain to realize this Old Testament act of crossing the Red Sea and the, savory, uh, the uh, salvation from slavery, that you see this was just to picture the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was just to give us a better idea of what that looks like. In the same way that marriage did not need to exist, and God created marriage to exist for the purpose of conveying the gospel in our relationship and to other people from how we love our spouse. This is the same thing. It did not need to happen this way. There could have been no famine. He could have marched them around the top of the Red Sea, or as I said, Moses could say, yeah, that's fine, you can go ahead and go. There were a thousand ways for the Israelites to get out of slavery. He chose this way because he wanted to convey what Jesus would do which is to recognize the bondage and the slavery of sin and send a solution to free us from it and rescue us and deliver us, which is what he did when he died on the cross for the sins of his people. Now, why do I keep referencing this idea of chosen being the gospel? And I'll just tell you candidly why. Because God has done this and he has brought us to a state of belief in Jesus in the same way that his chosen Israelites he rescued for the sake of the promise. Nothing is any different. Now, for some of you, that might sound strange, and what I would tell you is, it's written all over Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 makes no bones about it. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. As you sit here today, and I want you to think about where the Israelites were when they sat there and grumbled at Massa, and as he is delivering this law to them now, and they look at their circumstances, and they want to take responsibility, and they want to test God with their complaining, not realizing they have ended up here by God's grace. And it is no different for us in 2022. Apparently, last service, I said some sentence and said 2023, and Brooke told me that afterwards, and I was like, well, maybe it was the future for a moment. But this is the truth. Zero of you chose to whom you would be born. Zero of you chose your parents. You didn't choose where you would be born. You chose so little to end up at a 1030 service at Overland Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, United States. You've done virtually nothing to end up here. We, again, we... Um, uh, our American individualism, our guys finished a book study, um, some of us on Carl Truman's Strange New World. It's a phenomenal book. This is one of the main cases he makes in the book, is that how we've gotten to the state where the individual's experience is God for us. What we've experienced, this becomes our governor, so to speak, how we feel, what we do see, this is our... And it's just it's so arrogant. If you really just take a second and think about it, it is so arrogant to think that wherever you sit right now, you create it. Tino's not in here. 
right now, but he, he was in last service. Tino, if you don't know Tino, I mean, he's kind of a hard-to-miss guy. He's like 6'6", tatted from his neck to his toes, and he's an elementary school guidance counselor. He's an awesome dude. And one time, we're sitting there talking together, the very first time we met for breakfast, and we're going to start reading the book of John, and Tino's like, man, I'm, I've been listening to church and you guys, and I'm really struggling with, like, what I did to change this and what God has done, because Tino had a horrible childhood, and it made his way out, so to speak. And he's like, and I'm just seeing, because like, I worked hard to get here, you know, and I, but I know that like some of these things I didn't have control over, but I'm just like, it's hard for me to accept that, you know? And I responded to him with, what did you do to be 6'6"? He was like, nothing. <laughs> but that's how you ended up at Adams State to meet the FCA guy who led you to Jesus? It's interesting. The Lord did that. The Lord did that. And for each of us, the Lord has done that. The last, my last point here, there are three ways that you can view the gospel and what it's meant to your life. Three ways that you can view what Jesus has done and the impact it has had for you. One of them is that you have achieved it by earning your way to Jesus. You've done your part. You've lived holy. You've lived godly. You don't cuss. You don't do this. You can give me the, the list of all the sins you don't commit, right? And we'll line it up with the rich young ruler like Jesus did. You can do that. And I would tell you, you're, you're not a believer if that's the case. I don't mean that rudely. I simply mean God doesn't get the glory from your achievement. And so if you have achieved the gospel, so to speak, then discipleship is unnecessary for you because it's something that you've achieved yourself. If you have believed the gospel, I said this last time, I'll say it again. If you just take the soundbite of what I'm about to say, you'll make me a heretic real fast. So don't do that. Okay, let me, let me be thorough. If you have believed the gospel, what I mean by that is you have like intellectually ascended to the belief that these things happened then I would tell you discipleship is also, for you, probably an obedience thing that you feel like you ought to do because the Bible says so, because that's kind of how you got there in the first place. You have intellectually made it. And I've told you guys before, remember, Satan believes everything in Scripture. So, believes it all. Believes everything about Jesus, Satan believes it all. If you've received the gospel and you recognize, I'm a sinner and I have come to believe this, and this makes sense, and that is a work of the Lord, then I will tell you, you will see discipleship as a privilege in your homes with your peers. You will look at it and say, like the Israelites were, I've been chosen for this. The Lord would get glory from my life, and that the glory from my life would be how I invest in the generations coming after me to see them grow up and spread this good news of the gospel that the Egyptians would know that he is God, figuratively Egyptians that the nations would be glad, that the nations would know that he is God. This is the gospel. So for some of you today, if you've not believed this before and you are wrestling through what it means, what, is, what has Jesus done for you personally, we should have a conversation. You can check that box on the connection card. If you're sitting here as a believer today and you feel like discipleship of your children or young people feels burdensome, we should talk too. We have the amount of resources we have in this church from experience and wisdom and literature is what you need to be effective at this. If you're a Christian who's sitting here and encouraged by what this means and uh, rededicating your efforts to be the disciple, you're looking like, I don't, I'm not a parent, but I want to do this. Come talk to me as well, and we'll talk about avenues for you as well. But if you're sitting here today and you've not believed, and in th this service you realize, man, I believe that this is true, that this is why this happened, and that this is what Jesus has done, then we need to talk after church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, this morning and the chance to gather, um, the chance to, to read your word and to see you in your word, to see your nature, 
to see your, your love and your affection for us, God, and to see your command to us, Lord, the, the command to invest time and energy in the hard questions and being able to answer those questions. Um, Lord, we know that if, as we sit here as people for whom Jesus has died on the cross for taking our sins, God, we know that along with that comes the privilege of spreading the greatest news on earth, and God, that it would be well with us and for the other people that hear, Lord. Um, would, you, would you take from our hearts this sense of um, obligation or burden to make the gospel known, and would you replace it, Lord, with uh, the awe and the privilege? Lord, you are a worthy God. You are worthy of our praise and of worship. You are worthy of it from the nations. We ask that you would use our life and use this church and form the relationships, God, to bring it to pass. In Jesus' name, amen.